I mean, I had more than anyone should ever have. It was, it was really ridiculous looking back to think that I needed more. I was so lost. And it really brought me to my knees where it was causing problems between me and management. They, they saw me falling apart. I saw myself falling apart. And it wasn't until I came to Christ that I even understood any of this stuff because I needed God to show me what was going on. You're listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street, where real people working in the finance industry talk about life, work, and faith with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. I'm sitting here with my friend, David Bennett. Uh, Welcome, David. Thank you. It's good to be here, Nathan. So David is the director of equity derivatives at a large bank, third largest bank in the country and seventh largest bank in the world. Yeah, so I've been in the securities unit of an investment bank for the last 25 years. 25 years on the job, and you went to the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Yes. Can you take me back to that time, take me back to your college experience? Yeah, that's a, a special time where I feel that God was doing something I wasn't aware of. For some reason, my heart wanted to go down south, and I, and I really do chalk that up to God, because when something's on my heart I'm not aware of, I feel like he's speaking to me. So I was led down to Charlotte, North Carolina, And one of the reasons that my heart was attracted there is because I always knew I wanted to be in the finance industry since I was in the eighth grade doing stock trading stuff. And um, Charlotte has the second biggest banking industry in the country outside of New York City. And so I knew what I wanted to do business-wise being in in the Wall Street arena. And so I decided to go down where it was warm, but also get exposure to the um, financial arena. And so when I was down there, I walked into the office of what was then called Shearson Lehman, which eventually became Smith Barney. And I walked into the office asking for an internship where I'd be working for free. It didn't matter if I was making money. I just wanted to get my foot in the door. And I just happened to walk in the door of the one office where the guy who ran the office happened to be from Fairford County. And the other senior members of his firm also happened to be Fairford County. So when they saw a Fairford County kid, they immediately invited me in and uh, gave me an internship. And so I ended up working in the banking industry for two years until I graduated. I got all my licenses, the Series 7s and 63s that people usually get once they get hired out of college, but I got mine in college. And then from there, I went to Smith Barney in New York City once I graduated. Now, I heard you say a minute ago, you saw God's hand in bringing you there. At that time in your life, were you able to recognize that? I wasn't. It wasn't until later in life that I looked back and I saw his hand on me in that whole um, time of being in college. And so, well, tell, tell me more about then at what point in your life did you start discovering faith and in, in a relationship with Christ so that you could look back and see God's hand? So um, I grew up in the church in Greenwich, you know, going um, for most of my time up until about junior high. Uh, junior high and then after that, it, it was really um, not on the, on the front of my, my uh, journey. But once I eventually was an adult and I had children, it came upon me that that was what I was supposed to do. It was just in me and in, inside my my heart that I was supposed to bring my children to church. Mm-hmm. So probably around the age of 37, I ended up, um, 36, 37, I ended up going back to church. And what I thought was more for my children, Hmm. Um, looking back, I saw what God was doing, um, not just in my children, but in the midst of me and my wife. And 
our relationships with Christ. And um, that really took us back into the church. And um, at that point, I started feeling God pursuing me in ways I've never experienced before. So you really, you'd been a Wall Street banker really since college. And for many years, all the way in your mid to late 30s is when you really kind of came home to Christ. You came home to the church. Can you describe a little bit more of that experience for you? Uh, at church, how did God speak to you? How did he reveal himself to you during those years? So I'll share a couple things. So I was at a church, um, a church that our family had been going to for a number of generations, and I was involved in the elder board, and things, you know, it was church as I knew church from when I was younger, so I was back in it, similar to what I knew when I was younger, and things were occurring within the church um, that the head pastor was involved with that didn't work or sit well with me. And so I resigned from the board, or the, the, the elder board, and decided to go look for a new church. And somebody who else who resigned at the same time turned to me and asked me what I was going to do. And I also put this in, in God's hands. Mm-hmm. She's turned to me, and it's somebody I knew, not someone I was close with, but someone I just knew from being on the board. And she turns to me, and she goes, where are you going to go? I said, I don't know. She goes, I think you should go to Stanwich Church. It's spirit-filled. So I agreed to go to many, many churches. You know, my, my only idea was I'll go to many churches. I'm going to try each one twice, and, you know, just so I have more than one data point, and then I'll make a decision. And being that I lead my, spirit, my family spiritually, I went by myself, just to get a feel. Um, so I went to a whole number of churches. Eventually, I made my way to Stanwich Church. I didn't know where it was, and having grown up in town, I was surprised there was a church called Stanwich that I wasn't aware of, because I knew most of the <laughs> churches in town. But the day I walked in and sat in the pews of a fully packed Stanwich Church, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon me, and I completely started bawling, not, not just light tears, but floods to where my, the front of my shirt was wet. <laughs> and I felt the love of God come through me. And it was so strong. I remember thinking to God, like, you know, you, know, you need, I, I can't take this in. This is too much for me. It was too overwhelming for me to take in all at once. It was like just being underneath his loving presence was too much for me to handle. And that's why the, the, the tears just came out because I had no other way of expressing it but through tears. But it was a good experience. And I went home and I told my wife, I found our church, but I went back a second time. And same thing, tears from the beginning of the service to the end of the service. Went back, told her, yes, I found our church. Third time she came back. She started bawling under the presence of the Holy Spirit. I started bawling under the presence of the Holy Spirit. It completely changed our thinking and our way of what church was supposed to be and you know from then on we brought our kids and um you know we've been at Stanwich for seven years now (laughs) but that began a journey that presence of the holy spirit manifesting on me began a journey of of a baptism of the holy spirit that came inside of me that completely changed a lot of the the darkness I was experiencing um, in life and the bondage I was experiencing in life that, you know, he came to to set us free from. So that was where the beginning of my born-again, um, you know, Holy Spirit experience came from was that, that one day I entered into that, that building. I want to unpack that a little bit more um, in just a moment. But first, I want to give the listener a little bit more 
understanding of the culture that we live in. You've mentioned Greenwich a couple of times, Fairfield County, that you grew up here, you went to high school here, and then you went down south to college. So you're now raising a family here in Greenwich, uh, which, you know, the people are going to be listening to this podcast from all over the country, maybe even the world. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Greenwich, it's, a, it's about a 40-minute train ride to Grand Central Station. So a lot of people who live here work in the finance sector. They work in the finance industry. They work on Wall Street, including you, Dave. Can you just describe for people listening at home, describe this cultural context called Greenwich? Yeah, so um, this this will be interesting because I've only lived in Greenwich. So describing my um, mm. describing my my uh, environment here, you know, you know, versus others. Um, so my, I'll, I'll go back. I'm a fourth generation Greenwichite, if you will, and um, my father was a jeweler in town. That jewelry business has been in Old Greenwich since 1938. And my grandfather, my uh, great-grandfather, were involved in launching that. Um, so they all grew up in Greenwich. And my, my mom was a teacher in Greenwich for over 30 years. And so um, I grew up in the Greenwich public school system, um, Riverside Eastern and Greenwich High School. And, you know, Greenwich Greenwich today is is different than it was back in the 70s. How so? Um, just with... Um, during the late 90s to the early 2000s, there was a new influx of money through the launch of the hedge fund industry. And, um, you know, Connecticut is known as the hedge fund industry, the, ca- the capital of the hedge fund industry. And so a lot of that really resided in Greenwich. And so that really flooded a whole nother um, uh, level of money into, this, into the town, which, you know, changed not only the, the real estate equation, but it also changed you know, I would say the the performance perception and some of the other perceptions. Um, I think the, I would, you know, just to give you an example for the housing market, from 2000 to 2006, in a six-year period, which is really what I would chalk up to the hedge fund industry, real estate in Greenwich doubled in six years. And it's very hard to find a real estate market that will actually double. And a real estate market that's already higher than most of the country right. actually doubled in six years. Yeah. But it was really, that's where the change came, where, you know, you had a, an industry that was typically in New York City, but it was now in Greenwich. And I think that landscape really um, flooded the system with a whole nother level of um, performance and money and, you know, things of this world that people chase. I just feel like that kind of took Greenwich to a, another level. Yeah, I mean, when you say performance, that's an interesting descriptor of a culture, you know, a culture defined by performance. And I certainly find that to be true as well. I've lived in this town for seven years. And I find when I try to describe it for people, like back in the Midwest, where I, when I go talk to people, um, I try to say, you know, think back to every classroom you were ever in and think of that one kid in the class who sat in the front, raised his hand the most, got all the A's, the type A overachiever. Now take all those kids from all those classes that one kid, the overachiever, right, and put them all in one town, and so that's that's gonna you know that's gonna flavor the atmosphere for sure. Everyone's into performance; it's competitive. People are trying to outdo each other, um, not just career-wise, but also socially. Yep. Um, do you find that to be true in this culture as well? Yeah, and I'll I'll take you back to Greenwich High School. When I went to Greenwich High School, it was all about performance. It was all about, you know, who had more money. It was all about social status. It was all about um, keeping up with the Joneses. It was it was a really, you know, highly 
competitive upside down world that, you know, people were constantly measuring um, each other versus benchmarks that are about as unhealthy as it gets. But, you know, and a lot of that um, continued to aggressively get worse as the hedge fund industry came in because, you know, the parents were modeling that not only from their jobs, but down into their children. And so you, you felt the impact of that. So, so you're raising three kids in this town. What are you and your wife doing? You know, just tell us a little bit about what that's like to, to raise kids, knowing what we know about you, that you've just said you have the Holy Spirit on you, you believe in Christ, um, which in some ways are, are, are counter to the culture we've just been describing. Yeah. So what are you doing as a household to raise your kids? So the, the first thing I would say is that actions, I believe that actions speak louder than words. And as I've raised my children, as, as my wife and I, as Christians, have raised our children, what we've always tried to do is um, have them come alongside us in praying for other people or, um, you know, serving the homeless or just local ministry things. When we go on personal vacations, um, seeing people in wheelchairs and having the whole family lay hands on them and to pray for healing, you know, th- these are things that I always wanted my children to see through action on, you know, what was important important to their mom and dad and their faith and, you know, raising them up in the church and them seeing other people that, you know, walked the same way as their mom and dad did and, you know, seeing us worship the Lord and knowing that, you know, He comes first above, yeah. you know, above anything else. And, you know, as we have dinner conversations and, um, you know, we do a lot of, que- you know, question and answers. My, my children, as most children do, love to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my son last year, which I loved, came, you know, he was doing medieval work for school. And I walked into uh, the house from work and he says to me, Daddy, do you believe God can make a man a king? And so as he was studying medieval stuff for work. And so we sat down and went into the Bible together and we went back to the story of King David and, um, you know, when Samuel goes and, um, to Jesse's house and basically looks for his son yeah. and, and finds King David. And, you know, God is basically making King David the next king. And so he, my son immediately connected with that. And um, we try to bring the, the Bible, the biblical um, way into our lifestyle. Yeah. And you can, or we can speak as much as we want, but it's through the actions that I think that they absorb what God is doing in our lives. And, and it not only plays out in, you know, day-to-day places where we go, but it plays out in my marriage. Um, when Jesus came and stood in the middle of my marriage, it changed everything. And so when my, as my wife looks to Christ, as I look to Christ— as you know the the center of our marriage as the relationship and the the measure of where we should be going and how we should be loving each other and working together you know my my children see that my children see how we you know are you know looking towards the cross to guide us in our relationships and our in our general um, decisions in life and decisions that impact them too Hmm. And so we'll ask them, you know, as things come up, well, you know, what, what does God say? Have you, have you asked God? Mm. And so it's really just, you know, living it out through action and then sharing it with them and praying over them. And as they clear different age hurdles, really just doing declaration and prayer over them mm-hmm. so they can really understand who God says they are. And it's important to both Melissa and I that our kids truly understand who they are in Christ, what their Christ identity is, and 
the giftings that he's given them. And, um, you know, they know very well that the benchmarks of this world are not our benchmarks. Mm. So this performance culture that they're surrounded by is not being reinforced at the home. It's, it's their Christ identity that's being taught. That's right. So whether it's grades, you know, they're the pressure that they have to perform in grades. Now, of course we want them to get good grades, but, um, we always bring the, the biblical ways into, into grades, but the, their performance, the social scene, the keeping up with the people around you, um, we're very clear with them that the, that is not the benchmarks of the world. Yeah. And we want them to know what the kingdom of God is about, not what the world is about. So uh, every morning, dad gets on a train, leaves the household, goes into the city, and you go to this bank. And I've actually had the pleasure of visiting you there on the trading floor. And I learned a lot about you as a man. I learned a lot about the industry because I, I don't know if you remember that. I had a million questions about not just, you know, who you are amongst your peers, but about the industry. I'm always a student of that stuff. But tell us about what your, what does a day in the life of David Bennett look like? All right. So what all, the first thing I want to share with you is, is just the, the term Wall Street. Um, Wall Street is a a street down in the bottom of Manhattan, but Wall Street is actually a term used to describe the financial industry. Um, And so it's important to understand that it's more of a term used to really speak to, um, you know, people who work in the financial industry and and do things in investment banking. So it's a pretty broad term Mm -hmm. in the sense. Um, So I get up either at, you know, 4.45 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'm on the train to to Manhattan. Um, When I get off the train, um, there's plenty that happens on the train, but we'll talk about that later. But when I get into Manhattan, um, I come into Grand Central Station, and between 43rd Street, um, as I walk two and a half blocks from Grand Central on 43rd Street to 6th Avenue, on most days, I probably walk by at least four or five homeless people. And so my day starts for um, by praying over those people um, every day. I mean, most of them are regulars, and so I get to pray over them every day. What do you mean by pray over? I mean, do you stop and look them in the eye and pray for them? I will if 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 they're available to mm-hmm. be. A lot, some of them are buried in their tents and mm-hmm. their stuff, but some of them are just waking up. So um, some of them I build friendships with. Some of them I bring supplies to. Some mm-hmm. of them I bring Bibles to. And, um, you know, I'll... Uh, I'll give you another specific example. There was a young woman, 30 years old, named Amy. She was a, a heroin addict, and she was living on the streets because she didn't have money to to get a place. And she was she, you know, she definitely could have got gotten back on track if she had the right help. But um, her and I prayed every morning together for two months, and what we had prayed for was for her to get a place so she could get back on her feet. And at the end of the second month. A car pulled up as we were praying, um, and a guy got out, approached her, and offered her a place to live. It was a, a ministry that we're trying to get homeless people off the street, and he literally was an answer to our to her prayers wow. that we had been praying for two months, and it just happened on the end of the second month that he came up and offered her a place to stay. But we had brought her, um, my wife and I had given her a Bible, we'd given her a backpack, we'd given her razors, we'd given her all sorts of stuff, and I would bring her into restaurants to help feed her. Um, but yeah, if there, if there's an opportunity to engage them and build a relationship, that's, that's front and center. That's, that's yeah. first and foremost. But if a lot of times they're still sleeping and I'll just stop and pray over them. Before we get to the trading floor, you mentioned the train. 
So this is an important part of, of Wall Street culture. So many of these guys and women, they get on a train from one of the suburbs, including Greenwich, and the train culture is a thing. Now, I'm just going to describe this for the listener at home. I mean, usually, you know, I've been on that train a few times. It's usually, like I said, mostly men, but um, buried into a Wall Street Journal or their iPhone or maybe a book, or maybe they're just zoning out, or maybe they see someone they know and they say hi, and everyone kind of gets quiet on the train and just kind of zones out and wait till they get there. Tell me how you see the train car as maybe an opportunity or a missional opportunity. How does that go? Yeah, it it is. It's that, you know, I'm on a train... 45 minutes in, 45 minutes out every day for, you know, almost 25 years. And there's so many ministry moments on those trains. And when I, you know, thinking back over all the years um, since I've been born again, all the different opportunities were not always ones that I engaged or ones I expected, but they're ones that God put in front of me. Um, you know, one time I had a an older man um, jump on the train and he was all, out of whack, and, you know, we were um, headed out of the city, and um, I said to him, how you doing? And he just goes off and starts talking about how his mom passed and his wife passed of cancer, and I started talking to him about God, and he said, don't come at me with the God stuff. He said, I used to be a pastor. I know, wow. the, I know the Bible better than you do, but don't come at me with that God stuff. And he said, if, if God was real, then he wouldn't have let my mom and my, my um, wife die of cancer. And so, you know, for me, that's an opportunity that God aligned. I don't believe that happens by coincidence. I believe that somehow he came to me and gave me an opportunity to talk about how I perceive God and the testimonies that I have, um, because I believe that the testimonies that we have are a way for us to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And so I got to share with him how I perceived it and just got, you know, just got to love on him. You know, I, I do... I say, I, I go about, you know, just through listening to the Holy Spirit. What it, you know, Father, what is it you want me to share with this man? I don't claim to have the answers, but God does. Mm-hmm. And so that was a real eye-opener. And that was more in the beginning of when I was born again. And so I, I was praying I would run into the man again to have another chance. But I never know what's going to come out of it. But what, what the most important thing is, is I know there's opportunities on the train because mm-hmm. I've had many. But I, I just, I go in every, whether it's the train or my office or, or a building or an airport, it doesn't matter where I go. What I'm asking the Lord is, is if there's an opportunity here, I want you to show it to me. Hmm. So I, I'm hearing that. You, you look for opportunities on the train car. You look for opportunities when you're walking through Manhattan to your building. You see homeless people. There's an opportunity for ministry. Now you get, you go into your building, you go up the escalator and onto the elevator, you go up to your floor. There's thousands of people who work for this bank. It's the third largest bank in the country. There you are. I've seen it. You know, you're, you're in a sea of all these other people at their computers. And uh, the one thing that I knew about you even before I got there is that you put a cross between a couple of the monitors, a couple of the computer monitors. But what I learned when I visited you there is that your looking for opportunities goes way beyond just having a cross. Tell me about... Um, you know, the people that you work with, the opportunities that you see there for ministry? So the, the first thing I would share with you as, you know, as I come upon my building, because I think it's important to share it, because mm. it's really how I, um, how I really press into each day and position myself for each day looking at the cross. As I approach my building, the first thing I'm doing is I'm praying for our CEO, and every employee down the chain. And I'm praying for them to turn and face God in his ways, not our ways. 
And there's many prayers I use, but I want to lift up the people within my company um, before I walk in. And so that's just my natural prayer for the morning. And as I enter the big glass doors, I like to have Jesus go in before me. So I let Jesus go in first, hold the door for him. Some people look at me funny, like, who am I holding the door for? But it's not about what they think. It's about letting Jesus go before me. And then as I enter into the large lobby, I declare the kingdom of God is at hand. Because I want the spiritual realm to know that the kingdom of God is at hand. And even before I get up, I'm on the fifth floor, so I have to go up an escalator to the second floor and then up through. So I got to go through two levels of security. Well, there's ministry at all those levels. And so all those men I know by name, all those men, um, most of them are Christians, and we get to pray. Hmm. I've taken many of them out to breakfast, and you know we've talked about depression and divorce and just many, many opportunities. And then eventually I get to my floor, and um, my floor is about 400 people. It's a large trading floor. And there's 400 men and women on there from our, our management, which sits in the glass offices on the right and left, and then all the people in the middle. And so there's not a person on that floor that doesn't know that my identity is in Jesus Christ. It's, it's really come, I would say, with God's favor. I've never felt any um, pushback or anything like that, but I've definitely had, you know, many, many people just just through sharing my faith with them, when things come up with all these different people um, and people from other floors, I've had many, many people come up for prayer, whether it's for them or a family member who's going through something or their marriage. Um, you know, there's many, many testimonies over the last five or six years where um, people are, are at work most of the time. You know, we, we work long and hard hours, and so I get into the office around 6.45, and I usually leave around 5.30 or 6. And so, you know, we live there. We live in close quarters. You know, that's, those people are people that we're next to, you know, five days a week for many, many hours. So um, it's important to, you know, to pray and to, to pour into them. But uh, there's been so many testimonies, uh, you know, healing testimonies and just people coming to Christ testimonies. And when I walk in, my number one thing is to ask the Holy Spirit to show me what I need to see. Hmm. And I grew up in an environment on Wall Street where it was, it's all about performance and numbers. But if, I, if I'm really honest with my identity, it's not about performance and numbers. It's about what he's doing, because if you look at what he's doing, um, he provides what you need for each day. And so I come in focused on him, and it's, it brings this overwhelming peace, and I need to breathe that peace out of me into the environment that I'm in. And so the people around me, especially within closed quarters, will typically describe a feeling of peace hmm. in our row. And I'm going to interrupt you for a second yeah. because I, I want to say something that I, I know you're too humble that you, would, you wouldn't say this about yourself, but I want the listener to understand that you've been very successful in, in the industry. You've done well. You make a lot of money for the bank. You make a lot of money for yourself. And so I, I wanted to say that to the listener because we've described so far your 
kingdom-mindedness, your, your ministry opportunity perspective. You're praying for people. Everyone knows that your identity is in Christ. And it, it could be that someone might have the perception, oh, that guy is the company Jesus freak. But what I want the listener to understand is that you've also um, been able to experience financial success as well and career success. So those two things have not been at odds with each other. Um, and you're talking now about God being the one who provides, which is different than this performance mindset we were talking about before, where it's kind of the elbows are out. You have to outcompete everybody around you. Yet you walk in the doors and you have Jesus front and center, the one who laid down his life for others, the one who wasn't self-advancing. Yet you've also been blessed with success. Can you help maybe help the listener understand how those two ideas aren't contrary to one another? We're going to hear how Dave answers that question and several others on the next episode of Jesus Walks on Wall Street. The second half of my interview with Dave is even better than the first, so stay tuned. You've been listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. 